You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, I wanted to thank everybody for nominating us for the Plutus Awards. We have been named as finalists for two separate categories, Best Podcast of the Year, as well as Best Financial Independence Retire Early Content. As you recall, we won the Plutus Awards last year for the Best New Personal Finance Podcast. That was when we were called the What's Up Next podcast. I am looking forward to the Plutus Awards, and thank you, thank you, thank you so much for nominating us. This is Clark Sheffield. I'm Jace Mattinson, and we are going to unveil millionaires on the Earn and Invest podcast. $10 million. $10 million is what my accountant said I would need in the bank to retire early. I was a mid-career physician, and I had found that the day-to-day practice of medicine was exhausting me, and I wanted a way out. And so she gave me this number, $10 million, and it was ludicrous. It was ludicrous because she didn't look at my budget. She didn't look at my passive income. It was a number that I really feel, in some ways, she completely pulled out of the ether. And it started me to think about goals we have for wealth. We love to come up with these great numbers. $100,000 doesn't sound like enough. A billion dollars sounds like way too much an unreachable, but there is something about a one with six zeros attached to the end. There's something about a million dollars that seems just out of reach and yet to be the perfect goal. Jace Mattinson and Clark Sheffield are the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts. They study the tips, the tricks, the habits. They delve into the lives of millionaires unveiled. Clark and Jace, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Fun to be here again. We were here, when, a year ago or so, and we've had you on a couple times, so fun to connect again. Yeah, it's really great because in a sense, it feels like a continuing conversation. So when you have people on more than once, you get to pick up where you left off and they end up being really rich conversations. So I'm really happy to have you guys back again. Jace, let's start with you. How many millionaires have you guys now interviewed? Yeah, Clark and I were just talking about this. So we're going to release episode number 138 and not all of those 
have, have been millionaire interviews. We've had a few guests on in between, but most of our guests have been millionaires and we've got about 15 to 20 that we've already recorded that we have not released yet. So we're pumping up towards about 140-ish probably total, 150 pretty here, pretty soon here. Clark, at the beginning, didn't you guys get a little backlash where some of your fans said, hey, why don't you bring on some people who aren't quite at a million yet or some people who are aspiring to get there? Yeah, and that's one idea we had, right, is is we've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed with your podcast too, right? People connect with people who they can resonate with, whether it's career, whether it's a financial, a family situation, a life event. And so we thought, hey, why don't we try and interview people who are maybe either on the younger side or have a net worth coming up to a million, but not quite there. And, and someone will say, hey, I've been in my career five years, my net worth 500 grand or 10 years, 500 grand or whatever. And I can connect with this guy a little bit more. And then it allows us to track them over time, right? And so in five, 10 years, whatever it may be, they'll hit millionaire status and then we can, we can come back and track them. So we do have some interviews of people less than a million. Jace, tell me a little bit about why and how you started this podcast. Why did you resonate with this idea of studying millionaires? Yeah, so Clark and I, you know, we grew up with with dads that were pretty open with their finances and, and net worth and everything and how they invested. But that was the only picture that we really had was what our dads and maybe a couple of our our dad's close friends that were a little bit open, but not nearly as open as our dads were. And as Clark and I started discussing, you know, there's a lot of great books that have been written on theory or have been written on surveys. And we thought it'd be fun to actually talk to real millionaires, dive into their portfolios. And then, you know, we're young enough that we'd be able to kind of put these on paper and track them over time to see what happens, you know, in the coronavirus pandemic. In you know, if somebody had the data from 2008, how do people's investments change? How do their mindsets change? How do they evolve over time? And that's basically what we've, what we've put together now. Clark, is there some aspect of voyeurism here? I mean, do we like to look under the hood, so to speak, and see how other people are doing it? Oh, certainly, right? I think everybody, I mean, that's why I, I think one point Dave Ramsey's been so successful, right? As people come on and, and say, hey, here's a problem I've had, right? And I think people like that, right? I think it's the same reason social media has exploded is people like access to people. And I don't know that, I mean, I think we probably do that, right? Certainly we're getting into details of people's lives and, and things that they wouldn't otherwise share. But I think the intentional, the, the goal for us is, is more to help people learn, less to point fingers in a sense, right? Jace, was there some question when you guys began of what number to use? I mean, in some senses, is a million dollars what it was a decade ago? Are we still looking at that number as that kind of overall goal? Yeah, I think there's a lot of debate around that. And obviously, we have inflation and and change of times and change in values, house values, company values, how things are valued. So yeah, is is a million dollars still a phenomenal mark? Yes, I believe so. Is it definitely different than it used to be? Yes. One million dollars back, you know, let's say in the 90s when I was growing up as a kid is definitely a whole lot different than now. And in terms of, you know, looking at a million dollars, I think kind of the rule of thumb back in the day was, hey, a million dollars will get you to a great retirement. I definitely think that needle has moved for, for where we are today and cost of living. However, we have seen a big uptick in people figuring out how to 
let's call it geo arbitrage and arbitrage in some other ways to maybe make a million dollars or even less work in terms of retirement. You know, people use the the Trinity study and have 4% withdrawal out of their, out of the retirement. If somebody needs 30 grand, well, they don't need quite a million dollars. They can live on less. I think just going off of that, I totally agree with Chase. I think the other thing that's changed from, let's say, the 80s, 90s, right, where a million maybe was a good retirement number is now I feel like there's so many more side hustles and passive ways to earn income, at least that are discovered, right? And so I think somebody, we've had many people on the show that retire early retirement or, or shift to that passive income work source where they're only at a million or 1.1 or 1.2 or 1.3, right? And, and they say, look, I'm just quitting my day job. So I'm going to go from making 75 or 150 or whatever they're making. And yeah, I might make 20 or 30 or 40 by doing this or hacking that or working part time. And I think that allows them to supplement their income. So I think that just the ability to do that and earn income easier on the side working remotely, and it'll probably shift even more now, right? With this coronavirus stuff changes the dynamic a little bit as well. Because before it was just, I mean, you look at uh, the higher generation, right? My dad had worked for three companies his whole life and had a 40-year career. And I I think we're hearing that far less often. Yeah, it hits me, Clark, that a lot of people got interested in the financial independence retire early movement, but at some point they started realizing this whole retire early thing didn't fit them. Your community by more looking at a number really seems a little bit more varied in the sense that there are multiple different ways to get where you're trying to go. So it's not that retire early is the goal per se, but it's creating a stable financial pathway for yourself forward. Yeah, and that's I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we've had the highest millionaire we've had net worth of a hundred million, and the the I think we've had someone down to five hundred or whatever, right? Just to have them, but I think our average is what Jay's two or three, right? Yep. We've had a few people fifteen to twenty, thirty, and then most of them under ten. But but totally agree. As we were talking before this, we said, hey, what are you know what are ten things that we really learned or have stood out to us from doing this? And one of them was was what you just said. That when we say, hey, what's what's the goal? What, what What's happiness? What does it mean to be fulfilled, right? Has this money, if you're worth $10 million and you reached millionaire status when you're 35 or 40 or whatever, right? And you've grown your net worth. What's what's What does that mean? Is that, has the money made you happy, right? What, what was the goal? Are you fulfilled now? What is it for you? And for them, it was all flexibility. It was freedom and flexibility. Time to do, and, and you've said the same, right? Time to do what I want when I want. And so nail on the head, I I think you said it there. Yeah, And at the end of the day, I think we use million dollar mark or just net worth. It's just a way of keeping score, right? At the end, we're all trying to get some sort of income dollar that's going to support the lifestyle we want, whether it's withdrawing from a, a bucket of money in retirement investments, or it's having a bunch of real estate investments that kick off enough cash flow that passive income, that income stream, and the net worth is really just a way that these millionaires and us really look at keeping score for us internally and what's our best output and what are we trying to go in terms of getting that lifestyle. What does that lifestyle look like? You know, Clark and I put together basically a dream budget together two years ago, individually with our wives. What would that look like? 
okay, what if we didn't have certain things? Then what it look like? Okay, now what's that actual number that we would need to get there, whether it's retirement investments, combination of real estate, small business ownership or whatever, and kind of back into that. And that's one thing I think that a lot of these millionaires either do along the journey or they get to that point, you know, towards the end of when they want to quote unquote, give up the day job or retire from their, their main profession. Jace, you mentioned that dream budget that you guys did with your wives. When you look at millionaires in general, do they overshoot? Do they actually need all those excess millions to meet their goals? I think most always overshoot. And I think part of that is just human nature that there's always the unknown risk of what might happen, right? We just went through one of the craziest periods of volatility in the stock market still going on right now. It's hard to predict the future in terms of investments. It's hard to predict what would happen to real estate investments. So I think just in general, all of them overshoot to some degree. You know, one question we ask, especially those that have retired early at a young age or that have had substantial years of retirement and now gone through, you know, this pandemic, how has their mindset changed with their investments? Has it changed? And for the most part, None of them are worried right now, but there's always a common theme right now, especially, and that's going back to like, what's the cost of healthcare going to be and how will that affect me 30 years, 40 years out if I'm in my 20s, 30s, or 40s? Yeah, healthcare continues to be a worry. I think it certainly is one of the biggest impediments for people also thinking about retiring early or at least leaving a job to do more independent work. Clark, Jace had mentioned this idea that we're a little bit over careful or many millionaires are a little bit over careful. And you and I mentioned this idea that maybe retiring early is not the point, but looking for happiness. You said that there was a list of 10 or so things you guys have learned from studying millionaires. Tell me a a few of those and, and why you think they're important. Yeah. So I'll start with the surprising one. Jason and I were talking about this last night. The one that surprised us most is that most of the millionaires we interviewed don't pay off their home. And well, I shouldn't say don't pay off their home, right? Eventually they will, but they're not hurrying to pay off their home, right? They might have a net worth of $3 million and they'll carry their mortgage. And, and that was the most surprising to me. I think, you know, I've listened to Dave Ramsey, Jason's listened to Dave Ramsey, and, and you always hear millionaires have no debt or people, you know, get out of debt, pay off your home. And we've noticed that that's not the case. Not to say that some of our millionaires don't, of course, of course, some have, but most of them have, have been okay carrying a two, three, four percent mortgage and saying, hey, look, I can earn more. So that's probably been the most surprising one to us in, in that we thought, you know, you think of somebody worth five or $10 million and you think, with a $500,000 home, right? Nothing crazy or totally lavish. And you think they just pay it off. And that hasn't necessarily been the case. It's been very consistent when we say what's worth the money. That's a question we often ask is, as, as you were going on your financial journey and through life, what's worth the money? And most of them have said vacations, time with family. That's been a, a very common theme. Another one I would I would say that most of our millionaires, again, the ones that we've interviewed, hit millionaire status in their late 30s, early 40s is is about the average of where it's been. Of course, we've had some that have hit it in their 20s and some that have hit it in their 50s, but the average has been in the 30s and 40s. So those are a few that stood out to me. Jace, maybe you should mention, we talked about this last night, the lack of HSAs, right? That's one thing, I guess, that's also been surprising. Yeah, just real quick on, on on the age, 
what we've seen is it's taken about 15 to 20 years for millionaires to kind of get that first million. The second million has come in five or less and the subsequent millions have, have started to kind of snowball going back to, to what we learned in school, compounded interest and how fast that continues to grow. So it's always that hardest first million to get takes the longest. The subsequent ones come much quicker after that. And, and to Clark's point, you know, the, the HSA thing is, is very interesting, I think, just because one, they're a little bit newer, but two, they provide so many tax advantages and a lot of people that are either savvy with their finances or, or trying to get to a point where they have, you know, some stocked away for healthcare, given that healthcare has been such the big unknown. And that's when a lot of millionaires have, have you know, pause whether they retire, decided to not retire early or are looking at alternative options. I just would have thought that the HSAs would have been much more funded, you know, and, and invested because of their, their triple tax advantages. That's been one surprising point that, that we just haven't seen a lot that have HSAs or a lot of HSAs that are invested. Or self-directed Roths, right? That stood out to me a little bit is, is, I, th- I think we've had a few, right, of people that have self-directed their Roths. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just thought we'd see more of it, right, where somebody took some of their Roth money and self-directed it into a real estate investment or whatever. And we did have one guy who did it into self-storage, but it's not something that we hear of very often. And I think that's becoming more popular if, if somebody wants to invest in money outside of the market, but it's not something that we've heard a lot of. Jace, it's interesting I would expect that most millionaires would be incredibly savvy and technical with their investments and their saving tools. But it sounds like when we talk about the HSAs, et cetera, these are not necessarily the most technical investors, are they? Yeah, that's correct. And and Clark and I put together kind of a a rough outline of of how our millionaires are invested. And we have about 50% that have some sort of market securities, let's call it, you know, whether it's your 401k or a Roth IRA, HSA, all those kind of combined and real estate. So they've got some passive income coming from real estate or they own investment properties. And then we have about 25% that are just kind of solely your typical 401k millionaire where everything's invested in the market. Many of them have tried real estate one time or another, whether it's, hey, turned my former residence into a rental, really wasn't for me sold it, never gotten back into the game. And then we have about 25% that are just all real estate, don't invest in the market at all. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that they are very savvy with a lot of the tools out there. I think the HSAs are so new for a lot of them, you know, given that our average age, these millionaires are in their 30, late 30s, 40s, HSAs haven't been really that popular prior to maybe the millennial generation more or less. And so they haven't had time to grow or a lot of people just utilize them every year, you know, where we've kind of taken the the mindset that, Hey, if you're young, like I am still at this point, might as well put the money in there, invest it. And I'll just pay for some of the medical out of, out of pocket, save the receipts, get a, get a check later if I need it and kind of let that money accrue mainly because if, you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset that, yeah, I don't know what that healthcare bill is going to be in the future. And I want to have a nice stockpile that's set aside just for healthcare. 
Clark, Jace mentioned this idea of real estate, and I always imagined the number would be high, so it doesn't surprise me that such a large number of people you guys have interviewed are involved in real estate. But let's talk about self-employment. How many of the people you'd interviewed, how many of the millionaires are self-employed versus employees? And, and you count uh, somebody being all in real estate investments as well, self-employed, I guess, if they're not working yes. for somebody else. Yep. So certainly most of them, right? That 25% bucket would be doing their own thing. And then we've had a few, I can't remember, Chase, how many? Five or so small business owners. So Yeah, it's, half a dozen or so. Yeah, it's a bucket that's probably underrepresented on the podcast, right? I, I would think, I mean, you read articles about millionaires and you and you see a lot of them are small business owners. And so that's something we're trying to bring more people on, but- you know, we've had some like wood restoration company owner that came on and, you know, random businesses that you don't really think of a, a plumber. We had some guy that did a, a busing route. Right. And so to your point, I think at least the 25% of the, the real estate investors are all self-employed and then probably an additional 5% or so. But I think if you extrapolated the whole thing, I bet you it'd be more than that because I think we probably don't gather as many of those small business owners as we would like. Jace, if you go back to the famous book, The Millionaire Next Door, Stanley and Danko painted a picture of millionaires, and many of them were living much smaller lives than we would expect, right? They weren't living high on the hog, and certainly frugality was a common theme. Are you finding that in today's millionaires? Are they living understated lives? Are they being frugal? 100%. They definitely all live below their means. I can't think of one millionaire we've had on the show that outsized their income in a given year, for example. We did have one that that you know was super into cars and he's bought a couple of sports cars which you might t- think of the typical millionaire is going to go buy a bunch of sports cars, but for the most part they're extremely frugal. They're all living below their means. They're not quite living in that McMansion type lifestyle that that maybe has been portrayed in the media. And I think one thing that's super interesting about that is for the most part, a lot of them haven't done the house flipping game where they've moved up in house as they've made more money. You know, they've they've maybe done it once or twice, but they haven't done it every single, you know, massive increase in their 30s and 40s to the point that they're buying a new house constantly. And let me just add off of that because I, I, I totally agree that's true, right? I think that's the trend we see, but we've also seen those that are spenders, right? And buy the nice cars and the guy that goes to Vegas and walks out of the casino and says, hey, I bought a Rolex, right? Because I wanted one and I just don't care. I'm worth you know $3 million and I want a nice watch. So there's there's been some of that, the fun purchases or that I've always wanted this or second homes or third homes, right? So it's not fair to say all of them are, are millionaire next doors, but certainly I think Jace is right. The majority, the majority are. And, and to an extreme sometimes, right? I mean, you have a guy worth $4 million who's living in a $250,000 house. I mean, this was just a few episodes ago and he took his, his stuff to his accountant to do his tax returns. And he's like, my accountant almost fell over. He said, what, like, you've got to be making the most money out of anybody in that neighborhood, right? I, ha- I had no idea. And so sometimes it's, it's on the other end, but there are those that are, that are spenders. Jace, are you finding that people's habits change as they accrue more money? Or is this, you know, person worth $50 million still living, cutting coupons and playing it close? 
You know, it's funny. It's funny you ask that. We have found that for the most part, habits have been pretty ingrained. And it is very hard for a lot of these millionaires to quote unquote flip the switch. So let's just say they've, you know, these habits that have got them to that point in their 40s and 50s, it's very hard for them to then turn into that spender. Clark brings up a couple of these people that have made these purchases. You know, the guy that bought the watch right outside of Vegas Casino, he just won a bunch of money. He's like, well, what the heck? Might as well just blow it on a watch. I've always wanted one. You know, and he goes into the story and it's kind of funny listening to talk about it, but it's very hard for a lot of these millionaires to, to flip that switch from quote unquote saver investor to spender. Now, a lot of them have loosened up over time, I think, as their confidence levels have risen, as their wealth has risen. But it, it's not like they've gone from, hey, I'm living on, let's just call it $80,000 a year to now I'm going to just double or triple my lifestyle because I'm making 5x what I used to make. One specific story that comes to mind uh, was a guy, I just looked it up, episode 122. is a guy 59 years old, Doug Nordman. You've probably heard of him. He has a net worth of what, over a million, I think well over a million, but we have him just at a million. But he, he talked to us about flying first class. And when he goes on vacation, he's like, that's something I never did, right? I never, I never would let myself do that. And, and Jace asked him, look, man, was it hard to flip that switch, right? Like at, at what point do you say, all right, I'm going to buy a $350 plane ticket, but now it's going to be 800 or 1,000 or whatever it is, right, to fly first or business, especially if you're going overseas, right? He's like, look, if I go on a vacation to Europe, I'm flying first class. It's like, well, that's a $2,000 ticket. And, and when did you flip that switch and, and how did you do it? And Jace, what did he say? I mean, I think it was just, look, I just thought it was worth it to me. And I came to a certain point financially where I said, look, I'm going to spend some of this money. But I think the point is most of our millionaires haven't really been able to do that. I think it's hard, right? I think we all say, hey, when I reach this point or get to this level or hit this income or reach this net worth, I'm going to spend, I'm going to save, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy that. But you still have the pain points. You still have the pain points of spending the money, even if you can look in your account and see a bunch of money. So he's one of the few that said, eh, it wasn't that hard to, to change it, right? I could, I could start spending. Most, most aren't that way. Yeah, and in his case, part of the reason why he, he did that is he said, look, I'm, I'm a little older. It's a little harder for me to get in those smaller seats. I'm a bigger guy, and I just, you know, I'm willing to pay the extra money to be a little more comfortable, yeah, and, I remember back problems, right? Yeah, and there's a, there's another guy that that owns a software business. He's actually probably one of our higher net worth guys, and he had done the same thing. That you know, he's like, look, I flew first class like three years ago. You know, at the time, he had already been worth like five million. He's like, and I just could never go back at this point. He's like, and I don't travel that often. So the three or four times I travel a year, I want to fly in first class, have a comfortable ride, and it, it's funny that Clark and brings the first class flying first class up because we've had a handful of these millionaires that said that that's the one luxury item that that they've said is worth the money for them to spend on now is to fly first class. Clark, do you ever have any of the millionaires talk about their losses or big losses or falls from grace? You ever have someone who comes on who dipped below a million for a while or saw their wealth decline? Yeah. So the biggest ones that come to mind, right, are the 2008 real estate investors. So those that are the the, the bucket of the 25% that only invest in real estate, right, and have lost it. So recently, I think we've had two or three that lost it all in 2008. I think, I don't think any of them have, have 
filed for bankruptcy personally, but several that have lost it and then rebuilt it. But I remember an early episode we did where the guy was like, look, I'm going to lose $200,000 at lunchtime, right? When the market, when the market, you know, those 7% days, right? We had with the coronavirus days where you hit the breaker. I mean, that's a lot of money for somebody that has $4 million in the market. But most of them, I would think to your question, that would bother people more often. I would have thought to the sense that they'd be stressed out or worried about it. And, and most of them just brush it off. It's not to say they don't notice or they don't look at it or they don't care, right? Of course they do, but it's, it's not a concern. I think they have a longer term approach, right? And they say, okay, it's, it'll come back up. And most of them, most of our millionaires are invested if they're in the market or in index funds. VTSAX, obviously the most popular, but I think the approach is, yeah, it's going to dip down. I'm going to lose some money, but over time it'll come back up. Yeah, we had one millionaire that he said, you know, I, I look every day when it's going up and I just don't look when it's going down. And I think several <laughs> of them have kind of taken that approach. You know, and I, as we were discussing this and your question came up, we did have a millionaire, actually it was a former millionaire that had made a bunch of money selling a tech company and then took all that money and invested into another company and lost it all. And I think that was episode six or seven. So we did get in a couple of these you know, falls from grace, if you want to call it that, or, you know, but the most, most of our millionaires have taken more of a, a long, steady approach in terms of building their wealth versus hitting it big with one company and then, you know, draining the bank account to start another company or, or whether it be real estate investments or, or not, you know, like Clark mentioned, we had a ton that in real estate that lost everything or most everything in 2008 and had to kind of rebuild from there. Clark, we talk about millionaires as if they're a homogenous group, but are you guys noticing differences between, let's say, male and female millionaires or generational differences between baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials? Are there big differences there? I haven't, Jace. I mean, Jace might have a different take here, so jump in, Jace. But I haven't noticed a significant mindset shift between male and female. Of the females we've had, I, I feel like it's intentionality and purposeful and aware and intentional with their savings, right? And and their learning and their desire to educate themselves. So I haven't noticed a difference in terms of gender. The only place that I can say I've really noticed a difference is net worth levels. So when you get over, not you, when anybody gets over five or so, that's when I've started noticing a, a mindset change. And so at and, and maybe it's seven, right, or something. But of the people that we've interviewed that are over five, six, or seven, the goal setting really kicks in. The intentionality really kicks in. They probably work more. They're probably more purposeful. They're probably more driven on side income. And 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 not to say that you're not purposeful when you have a million dollars, right? Not at all taking away from anybody. But when you get over seven or so, the people that we've had that are 10, 15, 30, 45, 100, right? talking to them, it's a totally different, it's a totally different mindset. And I don't know that it's good or bad, right? Because there's plenty of people that we've had on that are worth 2 million and they say, it's plenty enough for me. I'm going to live a lavish life. This is what I want. And I, I couldn't be more happier and I don't want the 5 million. Then you have a guy on who's worth 10 and he says, I have a goal to be worth a hundred. That's what I want to do is be worth a hundred million. So that's, that's the biggest difference I've noticed is kind of that six or seven million, five million mark where once they cross that threshold, 
I think they're just more driven, more intentional. Goal setting becomes a bigger piece. And and oftentimes, I wouldn't say it's the case for you, right? But oftentimes, they're determined to make more and, and earn more and kind of increase their millionaire status to a certain point. Jace, that sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because what we're saying is that as their net worth goes up, as they hit the 7 to 10 million range, they get more intentional they think more about making more money. And yet, on the other hand, we said a lot of times they don't even change their lifestyle. So here they are making all this extra money besides may- maybe paying for a few extra first class plane tickets. Their net worth is skyrocketing up and yet their spending is staying the same. Does that make any sense to you, Jay's? It's, it's interesting to think about it that way. But let's just, let's just do the example of, of one of the one of the millionaires we've had on, he's worth a hundred million. And, and luckily I happened to, to know him a little bit more personally. So I kind of know a little bit more about his situation, but, and I can kind of paint a picture for everybody. So he never really had that goal to get there. Right. Like until all of a sudden his businesses were starting to kick off enough cash that, Hey, this actually might be reachable. So then he kicked it in gear and he's just wired that way. He is wired to drive, 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 drive. And so now he'll say, hey, look, at this point in my life, I've got these businesses, they're doing well. I've got a lot of people that work for me. I want to bring up all of them and I want to give away $100 million. So now that's what he's driven by is to give away $100 million on his way to probably reach a net worth, I would imagine in the 250 to 500 range. Because to do that, he's probably going to need to get to that point to have enough cash flow to kick off to you know give away a hundred million. So it's it's interesting that yes, their lifestyle is not going to change. He's not going to go live, you know, this crazy extra, you know, buy 25 different homes all over the country or whatever else you might think. You know, he's definitely going to 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 increase his lifestyle. But he lived in a house much like Warren Buffett, he bought for I think five or six hundred thousand dollars until like two years ago. So keep in mind, this guy's worth almost a hundred million dollars. Let's call it 85, 90. He's living in a 500, $600,000 house that he had bought when he was probably worth eight to 10 million. And it wasn't until last year that he scaled up and bought a house that was a couple million dollars, but still dropping the bucket relative to his net worth, you know, and as this pandemic unraveled, he cut back significantly in his spending and expenses, sold off one of his other properties that he had to try to pill down and, and really didn't change his lifestyle that drastically, but sold a bunch of, bunch of things off that were costing him, in his mind, un, you know, unnecessary dollars. And I think for him and for many of the others, again, not all, right, but for many of the others that crossed that five, six, seven million dollar threshold, they start to view it as a game it starts to be a challenge of, Hey, I want to dabble on this, or I'm going to try this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to open a business, or I'm going to see if I can, you know, have a certain amount of employees or do this or that. And I think under five, I don't hear at least that attitude as much or that thought process as much. It's more of, Hey, how much do I need? Right? What's the 4% withdrawal rule? Or when can I retire early? Or what's financial independence mean? Or how much do I spend a year? Right? That's more of the questions and the mindset we hear under the five million. Over the five million, it's 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 more of a game in a sense of of where can I get to. 
Jace, do you find that the amount of wealth correlates with happiness? When you look at the millionaires that you guys have interviewed, are the people on the top level of wealth more happy or seem more contented than the people who are on the lower rungs of the ladder? No, and I think given given the, the, the question, the happiness, we always ask about that. And Clark brought it up earlier that most of them value vacations, time with family, and and all of them will admit some of them have not always had, you know, their time hasn't always been blocked that way, right? Sometimes they've, you know, depending on the phase of life. But at the end of the day, it's what most have said that they value the most. It's not buying more expensive clothes or not buying more expensive cars or that kind of thing. The one thing that is interesting, you know, related to the, the happiness levels is a lot of them have said that as they've built wealth, it hasn't necessarily changed their happiness levels because they're, they're on this journey and they're happy on at the beginning of the journey and they're happy at the end. The one thing that has changed a lot though is, is their confidence levels and their, their level of, Hey, you know what? I, we can buy that extra thing. They're just a lot less stressed uh, to some degree about, Hey, if I spend $5 here, $20 here, or I lost like Clark mentioned earlier, $200,000 in the market one day at lunchtime, they're not as stressed because it doesn't change their lifestyle drastically or even at all if they lose that kind of money or spent that kind of money, call it stupid tax or something. Clark, I'm going to ask you about your personal lives in a moment, but I want to sum up this conversation. If Someone is listening to the millionaires unveiled. They are a wannabe millionaire. They're working their way up. Is there a secret sauce? Is there a specific piece of advice? Is there a main thing you think they'll glean from hearing these interviews with millionaires? So I, I wouldn't say there's a secret sauce. I think everybody wants something sexy, right? That says, if you do this, you'll become a millionaire. And I think we've just found Jay says there's no one way to skin a cat, right? Everybody does it differently. I think the commonalities they all have, though, is is they're aware and they're intentional. Everybody's intentional about what they're doing. If you're going to put money into your 401k, your HSA, a Roth, a 529 for your kids, if you're going to pay down your mortgage early, whatever you want to do, invest on the sideline in small business or real estate, you have to be intentional, right? How could you do it without being intentional? And so that's number one. And number two, I think that we've noticed is to be intentional, everybody learns. They're trying, to, they're trying to educate themselves. They're listening to podcasts. They're reading books. They're reading websites. They're talking to people. I mean, there's, there's nobody that we've interviewed, and it, it's obvious, right, when you really think about it, that just, oh, I don't, you know, I can remember one lady that said, look, I don't know how it happened. I'm worth $5 million. I don't know how it happened. I put it in the bank account, and it just grew, right? I mean, she literally said that. I, I don't know how it happened. I looked back 10 years later and, and it was there. But to that point, I would say she was very intentional about spending less than she made. She was very intentional about saving. She was very intentional about putting it in the bank and she did invest the money. So it's not like she was just sitting on cash. And so that's the first point. If somebody wants to be a millionaire, I mean, you're, you're going to resonate with somebody, right, that you hear, whether it's you know, in any background or how you want to be or the certain amount you want to get to. But the first step is you got to learn these things, right? And if you're listening to this show, that's step one. Of course, you're doing that. You're being intentional. And so that'd be, I guess, the secret sauce, if you want to call it. And Jace, feel free to add if, if I've missed, if you think anything. I'll just add that in, in addition to being intentional, you know, this isn't something like Clark mentioned that 
that they just wake up and it just happens. I mean, they've, they have crafted a plan. Most track it, you know, whether it be annually or monthly, you know, they track their spending. The one thing I will mention that that's been surprising is there's not as many millionaires as I thought that would be quote unquote budgeters and that would put together a, a budget. You know, most of them are very aware of their spending, but a lot of them have said, Hey, look, I, I don't have time to sit there and, you know, cry over a nickel spent in this category versus $5 in this category. So that would be one thing I would, I would say that you know, maybe on the contrary to being the secret sauces, you know, if budgeting works for you, do it. If it doesn't, Hey, you're in great, great company. There's a lot of millionaires that do not budget, but they are very, very aware of their spending habits. And they're very, very aware of the trajectory of their net worth and what they need to do to kind of get there and what kind of investment philosophies that resonate best with them. And they go all in on those investment philosophies. Clark, let's talk a little bit about your personal financial life. You now have had a front row seat to hearing the secrets of some of the wealthiest people in America and in the world. How have your own financial habits changed? How have you been affected by making the show? Yeah. So number one, I, I've, I've placed way more value now on HSAs, right? That's a, that's a simple answer. I, I just, I see that more than I did, right? I mean, we just interviewed somebody this week that had, what, Jason, 140,000, I believe in her HSA and she's in her mid forties. And so that's incredible when you start thinking about some of the benefits that an HSA can be. And she's a single mom, right? So she hasn't had help from her, from a spouse that's been able to contribute as well. So which is remarkable. Number two is whether we like it or not, most of our wealthiest guests have investments in real estate. That's just how it is. And, and most of our millionaires do, 50, or at least 50, 75%, right? If you count the 50% that dabble on both and 25% that are just in real estate, that's 75% of the millionaires we've interviewed are invested somewhat in real estate. And so I didn't grow up with real estate. I, my, my dad has one rental property now, but I didn't grow up seeing that. I didn't really know that. I wasn't exposed to that. And so that's something that I've I've taken away is is that's some and that's something that's easier to get into, I think, than people think, right? And there's so many ways. You think about real estate, you think about, okay, I could buy another house and rent out my primary residence, or I could just rent out the basement, or I could get an Airbnb, or I could invest in a syndication, or I could buy some land, or I could buy a mobile home park, right? I mean, you start thinking about, okay, how can I invest in real estate? There's a million ways, but that's one big takeaway I've taken is how many of these millionaires and how many of the millionaires that have the highest net worth have invested in real estate. Jace, has your life changed or your habits because of the show and what you've learned? Totally. I think, you know, when we got involved in this show, I had, you know, I'd been investing in the market since I was a teenager, mainly with, with my paper out money and my lawn care money that I'd been earning back in the day. And to this day, I, I you know, that's just ingrained. That has never changed. I've had a Roth IRA for 20 some years and I could probably never contribute to that again. And it'll be fine and ride off into the sunset and have that money, you know, for retirement. Clark mentions real estate. You know, I, I also didn't grow up with a lot of real estate in the family. And that's something that's changed in, in terms of my mindset and investing more in real estate. I think the biggest shift is, is really, I've been able to hone in, like Clark mentioned, all these millionaires do it differently. And I, I always say there's no way to skin the, you know, there's a million ways to skin the cat. 
my personal philosophy has evolved in the sense that I kind of look at my investments in three separate categories and I try to kind of attribute my wealth building in those three separate categories. One is invested in marketable securities such as, you know, retirement accounts, Roth IRA, HSA that are invested in, in publicly traded companies. Another third of it's in, in real estate. And then the other third of it's in, in businesses that I have control or have some ownership in uh, that are private companies. And so as much as I can, I try to allocate uh, my investments such on that scale. One, because two of them provide income today and in the future. And the other one is much more in, in line for, hey, you know, if I screw everything up in these other two buckets, I at least know that I've got a third socked away that will provide for a retirement that I, I can, you know, be happy on, live on, my wife's happy with. Clark, has the current coronavirus pandemic and the recession changed the outlook of millionaires today? Not so much. Not so much. I mean, people have lost money significantly, right? I mean, we've talked to people that have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, we're recording this mid-June now, so the market's come back. The S&P's only down 8% or something from the high, and it got up to 4 or 5 But it hasn't necessarily... The, the one, I guess the one thing we will say is we've asked a few people is, hey, with the stock market where it was, and these were interviews we were doing at the end of March, right? The, the low is March 23rd, I believe, at least for, for the major indices. But we said, hey, with the markets where they are, and these are real estate investors, mind you, that didn't have anything in the market. And we said, with the markets where they are, does it now tempt you to get into the market or does your behavior change because of where the market is? And I remember one of them said, no, right? I'm just not a market investor. But several of them said, yeah, it's low enough now that I might dabble in it. And so the millionaires that have had cash on the sideline that we've spoken to about coronavirus and the market being lower, they've taken an opportunity, not all of them, but several of them that we've talked to have taken an opportunity to invest more money. But as far as long-term projection and thoughts about where I'm going to be. We haven't met anybody or at least that's told us that's, that's panicking and selling and nervous about the future. Jace, you had mentioned before, I believe that there were less millionaires than you thought. Is a million dollars still a lot of money? Yeah, it's still a lot of money. <laughs> I can attest a million dollars is still a lot of money. Seven figures will get anybody's attention. Just give a quick example. We were trying to buy this this piece of property in, in my company and uh, the company that I'm a CFO at and, and the, the owner did not remember that they owned the property. It had been passed down a couple generations. They forgot they owned it. We told them that we would offer them a million dollars. He said, even at my wealth level, that gets my attention. <laughs> so a million dollars is still a lot of money. It's, I think it'll always be a lot of money, at least in our lifetime. You know, it's we have a lot of millionaires that come on the show that, Hey, I can live a great life on $40,000, which is basically withdrawing 4% of their million dollar portfolio. And, and we've had probably at least a half dozen that have retired around that mark or just below that mark or just above that mark uh, and, are, and are super satisfied. So yes, it's still a lot of money. Clark, you're not going to be changing the name of the show to 10 Millionaires <laughs> Unveiled or anything <laughs> like that. You're, you feel pretty confident that Millionaires Unveiled will stick. Yeah, and it's good because then when, the, when inflation happens and a million is not as much, it just gets us unlimited guests on the show, right? Ah, just keep having people that. to interview. Yeah. Um, not like we're ever going to run out, but. 
All right. Well, Millionaires Unveiled is aptly named because a million dollars is still a lot of money. Thank you guys for coming on. Before we close, I just wanted to ask you what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Jace, I'll start with you. What's going on in your life and where can people find you if they want to know more information? Yeah, our, our shows and uh, Millionaires Unveiled, you can find on Apple, Stitcher, all the places you, you listen to your podcast. We've got several episodes that are coming up through the summer and into the fall. Like I said earlier, we've got about 20 in the pipeline. So we've got a, a full slate great millionaires coming up for a lot of people, especially we've had several that we've interviewed lately that have written into the show over this pandemic that have had more time on their hands to do an interview. And that's kind of why we have such a a big backlog. So we've got a lot of great guests, people that, you know, don't have a social media presence, don't have a blog, don't have anything. You're just kind of your average everyday Joes that, that, that have written in in terms of me and Clark, you know, Clark's actually coming down to, to Austin here soon. So we're going to have our, our first live recorded together in person. Uh, again, have a little business meeting and, and, and do something together in person, have, have a good weekend together. So that'll be fun. It's been a couple, it's been a what, year and a half, Clark, since we've uh, gotten together in person. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're also redoing the website. So trying to get the website up and going, get some better show notes, some transcription of some of these episodes. So working on that, it's a work in progress. Yeah. And I would encourage you when you're together, if you ever get a chance, do a live interview with a guest in person. It's a lot of fun. You guys actually have enough of an audience. Consider even doing one in front of an audience. It's a go. really cool way to do an episode. You record it live, you get a little audience reaction, and then you play it on the show. And I've really enjoyed, I've done a few of those at different conferences at like Camp Financial Independence, Camp Fi. Right. Um, and those cool. are really fun occurrences. So something to think about. Clark, anything else going on in your life? Anywhere else we can find you on the internet if we're looking? No, I think that's it. I think that's it. We've yeah, just put one interview I'm really excited about is we just interviewed a African-American single mom that grew up in poverty in the South. And, and it's just, you listen to these stories of, of her and a janitor and a plumber, right? And those are the ones where, you know, on one hand, you feel, it makes you feel bad because you're pushing for higher numbers, right? And you have these people that are incredible, right? She's never made over 100,000. I think she reached 90 once. And now she's at 1.3, right? And went through a divorce. So it's just incredible. You listen to these everyday people. And I mean, you'd never know, right? You you pass these people on the street and and you have no idea. So it's humbling when you hear stories like that and, and how intentional and focused they are. And it's a, a blessing really for both of us to be able to hear them. So that's one interview coming up that I'm excited for. Clark Sheffield and Jace Madison, I love your show. One of the things I really do love about it is the optimism. Because a lot of times when we hear about these sums of money that we feel are out of reach, to hear everyday people talking about it, how they got there, and how in a lot of ways they're not particularly different than the rest of us. It's a great show, Millionaires Unveiled. I highly suggest you take a listen. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Hey, thanks Thanks for for having us. us. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. Just wanted to remind you that we are going to be doing an Ask Me Anything episode. This is a chance for you to ask me 
Doc G, your questions about personal finance, podcasting, or about my life in general. If you have any burning questions that you've been dying to ask this whole time, here is your chance. There are really two good ways to do this. One, you can go to our website, earnandinvest.com, and at the top right-hand side, there is a voicemail button. So go ahead, hit that button, leave us a voicemail, and you will get a chance to hear your own voice on the Earn and Invest podcast. The second way is to go to our Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And over the next day or two, I'm going to put a post up that you can respond to with your questions, or I'll also add the link because I'd love to hear your voice in our voicemail system so that we can play it on the show. I look forward to hearing your questions. I look forward to answering about personal finance in general, about podcasting, and about me in particular. And thank you again for being part of this community. Now back to the show. So a very special treat today. We have the Paul Thompson back. As you guys remember, Paul Thompson is my partner for the podcast, the What's Up Next podcast, which was the precursor to Earn and Invest. We did, I don't know, how many episodes, Paul, did we do together? We did a good 70 or 80, I think. I think it was 70 or 80. That sounds about right. Yeah, I'm on 130-something now. So the grand majority have still been with Paul. In fact, if you listen to any of our Rewind episodes, those are some of our most popular episodes, and many of them have you in them, Paul. I miss you for sure here. I've said that over and over again. Uh, But excited to hear what's happening in your life. Today, we're going to talk about real estate. First and foremost, these are funny times for anyone with the pandemic and COVID. How has your real estate business been affected? Are these busier times or not as busy times? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Uh, anytime hanging out with Doc is a good time. So it's, <laughs> it's just, I'm looking really forward to just catching up with you and connecting back with the audience as well. So real estate in the times of the global pandemic. So from about March to April to May to June, the market largely hit, hit the pause button. There just wasn't a lot of activity. There wasn't a lot of transactions happening. They were trying to figure out how to deal with it. And then there, and people who were considering selling said, well, what, you know, how, how, what should I do? And so there was about two, maybe three months of very little activity. I, I, I did a couple of transactions, but they were um, few and far between. And that's, that's, I would say we do between four and sometimes as, as many as 10 transactions per month, uh, more like four or five, sometimes six. And during those three months, we, I think we did two the entire time. So that, that shows you how much from, from my business, how much it changed. So then summer, midsummer, about July after the, the, you know, kind of the official quarantine was starting to be relaxed. The market just went, went bananas in, in ways that, I didn't predict and I thought it'd be a much more slow ramp up and there's still, I think inventory overall is low. And this is mostly single family talking about here. Um, inventory is low, but there's a lot of buyers and there's a lot of available, really cheap money. So what happens, this is an important principle when you're thinking about real estate, what happens when money gets cheaper? It causes the price and the value of a property to go up typically of the market to go up because it's easier to get money. Right. So, and, and then when there's a supply constraint, 
yet still high demand, what happens? There's a kind of a, a, a flurry. Now, is that a good idea to to buy? Um, it depends on your, your kind of situation. I, I am selling properties right now because people are buying at a premium over and above what I think it makes sense. And so, you know, when everybody, when the sky is falling, uh, um, you know, I, I tend to want to buy when, when things are going well, I tend to want to sell. So you kind of want to zig when everybody else is zag. At the same time, I'm still buying properties when I can find them at a discount and they can cash flow. So I would not say this is a good time to be subjective and try and uh, be, a, do, be doing a lot of aggressive flipping because what's going to happen to the value of these properties six months from now? Because you're, you're forecasting something you don't really know. Right now, what's going to happen in the next two months? Who can say? Who can say? I mean, normally, normally we don't know that anyway, but the trajectories right now are just bananas. I mean, I, I, I can't predict what's happening. So that's kind of been my experience and that's been consistent with other people that I've found that are that either I know who are in the business or people who are in the mastermind that are all, all over the country. Very similar things with single family is that there's a, it's a very hot market. And I don't even live, I live in Little Rock, which is not really considered an air quote, a hot market. Uh, it's kind of a secondary, you know, not very sexy market. And I feel like it's very hot. So if you live in places like Seattle or LA or Chicago, DC. I, I, I mean, everything I'm hearing is that it's just, you can't hardly find a house. Let's rewind a moment to something you said in the beginning. You said that there was this pause where you were doing maybe one to two deals a month. Were you worried? I mean, was there some anxiety growing that the way you had been building up wealth and the way you were running your business was going to fundamentally change? Well, not fundamentally for the long term, no. But yes, during that time, uh, my income associated with this part of the business, which is not the only thing I do, but it is a decent size of a a segment of my or percentage of my income, it took a big hit. And and I also own rentals. And I was really more worried about the rental side of things because that is kind of what I kind of fall back on as my stability platform. And Fortunately, I actually only had a problem with one tenant who was unable to pay so far, and we've been able to work out a slow play, um, a slow pay program for them, and they're being able to catch up now. But yeah, it was very uncertain. I mean, we didn't know if we're going to have fifty percent of our uh, tenants that certainly suddenly couldn't pay, or I still think worry about that now because so much of what's happened from the government policies has helped kind of prop things up for now. When does that come to an end? When does the music stop? And all of the programs that are put in place, there, there's going to be people falling through the cracks. They're, those programs are, are blunt objects at best, and they're only going to do so much. And there's going to be people affected by it. And I just want to make sure that I'm not one of those people. Yeah, people don't realize the rental market can be a little bit dicey. I turned over three of my four units in the last few months. And for a while there in Illinois, we weren't allowed to show a unit that was currently being occupied. So my goal is never to leave a unit unoccupied, even for a month if I can. Mm. And so I had renters in all my units and I knew they were coming up, but you could only do virtual showings. So it does, the point you brought up about legislation affecting your ability to run your real estate practice, whether that's landlording or deal making, it's kind of a black box, right? You don't know what the government's going to do next and how it's going to affect your business. 
Mm -hmm. And what's nice about what I do is I'm intentionally a very small player and which makes me very nimble. So I can adjust to what the market gives me. And I have a, a theory that everybody is making money in any market in any market cycle. So because there's, there's land everywhere. There's people that need a place to live everywhere. So there's a way to make money in real estate, but you may have to adjust. So I don't like being overly technique based. If flipping doesn't work and all you do is flip, then you don't have a business anymore. Or if all you do is wholesale or, or deal making and, and, and that shuts down and you don't have any rentals that are paying you, you have nothing to, to you. So I like to have to kind of prop up your, your, your chair up with as many legs as you can while also being really good at your practice. So it's kind of a, a balance as to, you know, what do you double down on and be, become really good at? And for me, it is finding access to deals. That is the fundamental theory behind my philosophy of, of, of real estate is it's an imperfect market and I'm all out there in the market trying to find those discounts. I want to talk about this diversification of your real estate holdings. A lot of people don't realize, like we diversify in stocks and bonds, people who do real estate also diversify to protect themselves and to protect their assets. But before I jump into that, just one other question. One thing I've noticed here in the Chicagoland area is urban flight. So we have a lot of people who are leaving the cities, especially since they're working at home and moving to suburbs. I live in Evanston, Illinois. It is a suburb right outside of the city. It is almost impossible to find a home here. When the homes go up on the market, they are gone within a mm -hmm. day because people are really trying to leave that city. Are you seeing that in Little Rock? I don't know if it's a big enough city to see that effect, but I know that's happening around the nation. It is happening in major metro centers. I don't have any data points to say that either is or is not happening in Little Rock. We're a small enough market that even if that did happen, I'm not sure you would notice it because the population density is so low compared to someplace like Chicago or certainly New York City. I've heard New York City's, or everything I read about New York City is that it's absolutely happening. It just doesn't make sense to be there anymore. They're so Impact. So yeah, the the way we live as as humanity is going to be fundamentally changed, and we're just seeing the tip of it. When is the last time you shook somebody's hand? I know, or, or hug someone for that matter. Yeah. If you went to some type of function, yeah. yeah, that wasn't your own family. I mean, yeah, will we ever do that again? I mean, it's funny to think about the the social the social aspect of why we shake hands. It actually makes no sense. It's just something we've been raised to do. Is it just part of our culture? Uh, but you know, we, we were teasing with we're trying to find like a new way to like greet people, <laughs> but not be disrespectful to other countries. Like you know, do you bow or you know, like what what's the right way or like the the uh, I think uh, there's a Jewish uh, tradition where you, once you get married, you, you can't touch another married person of an, of an, so that they air hug each other. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I only recently learned about that myself. What, what, I wonder what that new thing is going to be. Like when I go to the gym, um, we, we do like the, 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 the elbow tap, you know, we, we have our mask going and we just bump each other's elbows, but that's kind of a bro thing. What, what do you do for when you meet people? I think, I mean, just stay six feet away and just kind of wave. <laughs> I don't know what else to do right now. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of waving going on. That seems to be the default. It maybe is the thing we're most comfortable with. What you're talking about are these structural and fundamental changes in our society. And clearly, those are also going to affect how we do real estate and how what I would call professional investors like you deal with it. 
there's an evolution of how most real estate investors think, or at least the ones I know, the ones who stayed in it long term, often end up in a place very different than where they started. Talk to me a little bit about your evolution as an investor. What were you interested when you first got into real estate and how has that changed from what you're doing now? That's a really good question because that evolution will change by the person and will change by the market cycles and whatnot. But for me, I, in 2015, I guess when I started, um, I was looking to escape my day job, which I did in 2017. And my agenda at the time was to learn as much as I could about, about the market to, to begin with. But then secondly, to create additional streams of income, uh, I say passive residual streams of income that would replace, or at least in part replace my earned income that I was having it from a W-2. So for me, that was rentals. And I had a philosophy when I first started, if, if I do anything but buy and keep a property, then I'm making a mistake. And I, I don't feel that way anymore. Now I'm a deal maker, but I have built my portfolio. And so now I'm working on not building an empire of hundreds of units because I, I, lifestyle is as is, is, is important to me as more and more money. There's a certain tipping point where like, you know, I, I can, yeah, I can spend more time and energy and build more systems and processes and, and people and make lots more money. But is that really what I want to spend my time doing? And I have found that no, like, like, like you say, during this time that we've spent through the quarantine, I've been able to spend a lot of time with my family and I haven't been stressed. We've had some of the best memories that we'll ever make because we've been forced to kind of be together. We've, we've had a, a forced staycation for months on end. <laughs> <laughs> so, and for us, it was great, but I know for a lot of people that that can be a challenge depending on where they are financially, where they are with their families, things change. But so for me, I am trying to become better and better at finding the the discount bargain bin for properties. And it could be any type of property. It could be mobile homes. It could be land. It could be single family. Um, I'm doing a little bit with small apartments. And that's just what makes sense right now in my market. And some people dance around between markets. And we are at the point to where we're thinking, do we expand? You know, do we just go dig deeper in my own mar my own backyard here in Little Rock, and where I feel like I'm standing on an acre, a, a, a diamond of acres, you know, an acre of diamonds? Um, or do I branch out into other markets that have similar dynamics to Little Rock and I already have contacts? So that's kind of the point that I'm at personally, where I'm trying to figure out strategically what, what do we do next. And my current stance is I'm just going to double down in my own market until I, I saturate my marketing plan to the point to where I get a re diminishing returns. Then I may consider going to another market. There are layers to the real estate market. And those of us, especially at the beginning, get into that traditional landlording, right? As you were talking about, you buy a place, maybe you fix it up, and then you rent it out. What you learn if you do that enough is that it is a fairly, I, I, maybe I'll say it the other way. It is not frictionless. There's lots mm -hmm. of friction in that lifestyle, yes. right? There are tenants, there are vacancies, there are problems with the unit. So after you do that long enough, you either hire out or you start evolving into deals which have less friction, mm -hmm. which feel a lot easier. And I, I feel like that's what you've done when you talk about deal making, I think for those of us who aren't in real estate, we don't exactly know what that means. So can you talk about a recent deal you were involved in and what kind of role you played? Sure. So 
I invest inside of my IRA and solo 401k a fair bit now. And most of the time, what I'm doing is I'm lending the capital I have stashed away inside of these qualified retirement plans, tax deferred accounts, tax exempt accounts, and let other people go and do the hard work of flipping houses, of owning the rental and doing the what and doing the work. And I get somewhere between an eight to 12% return on that pretty consistently. And I don't spend a lot of time going and finding those deals. That's when people bring a deal to me and say, Hey, I want to do this deal. So for example, I had someone came, come to me the other day or a few months ago before this was like January probably. And he wanted to buy a rental here in town. He was going to do what they call the Burr method where they buy it and they fix it up and they're going to refi it. Well, in the time that he did the work, he was laid off from his job, so he cannot refi it anymore. So what I did on the front end is he needed $47,000 to buy and rehab the property. So, which I know if depending where you are, that seems absurd, but that does happen here. <laughs> um, and, but you know, it, it, it'll, at the end of the day, it only rent for 900 to a thousand. So they kind of, that keeps your, your, your context in, in, in line there. So it, it doesn't rent for 1500, for example. Um, so what he did is he said, I need to borrow this money. And I said, well, you know, I'm all tapped out inside of my solo 401k, but, but I do have 2000. How about I lend you 2000? I go and help you raise 45,000. I did that. I went and found somebody who had money in an IRA as well. And they lent him $45,000 and then I lent him a $2,000 in second position so that I, and I, I get 12% and this, the, the first position, uh, lien holder the, for the 45 gets 10% on his money. And so at the end of it, we were going to refi it and he was going to, you know, refi it for, you know, 45, $50,000 return our money. And then he goes on about his way with his rental property. Well, now he can't. And he's a good, good guy. I mean, he just, you know, life happened to him, you know, come on. It was like, it's been, we're not upset with him, with him at all, but we do need to solve the problem. So I'm thinking about, I may just take over the property inside of my solo 401k because I can go and find a, a money partner that has the 45 and we may actually buy the property from him for about $60,000. And, but it, he's already done the rehab. He's done all the hard work. And now there's a thousand dollar renter in there. So they've done all the work for me and he makes his money. Um, we've made our interest on our money and then we have a property that has no debt on it anymore and we just split the profits 50-50. That's the kind of things that I do. It's, it's reacting to the situation. What can we do? Where does it make sense? And, and fundamentally, how can you create a win-win value or win-win scenario so that everybody gets value out of the, out of the transaction? So there's clearly an art to these type of deals, right? You can't just go and find this in the playbook. There's a lot of thought process around how things happen, how you fund these transactions, and how you as an investor make money. For your average person who is a little bit involved in real estate, but maybe not to the level you are, how do you educate yourself so that you can partake in these type of deals? So I'll give the standard answer, bigger pockets and equivalent type sources, but they're not going to talk at the level that, that what of the details of the transaction that I should, how do you actually write the paperwork to make that happen? How do you even know that that's even a possibility? You, you really need to go and educate yourself at the next level and either find a group of people who are doing that sort of thing. Uh, what I started doing is I, I went to these, um, they're, they're not the guru type, uh, lessons or the courses. They're these 
uh, guys that have been doing, and some women that have been doing it uh, for 30 or 40 years. And they put these little weekend courses on the weekend. Um, and they're like two or three days long and they're, they're terrible at marketing. They have no sales pitch at the back of the table. It's nothing like that. It's just like knowledge. And I wouldn't found those people. And I, when I first started, I probably spent, I went to six to eight of those per year. And I just always was picking up something new. And I made a network of people, found a group of people. One of them is called the Financial Friends Network. I'm a member of it. I get no association or value out of sharing it other than there might be other people in the group. And that's a really good group to get into. And a lot of these, 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 the philosophy behind all these people is they just don't believe in banks. Now, there are still plenty of people in these groups that do use banks, but they prefer to lend money to each other inside of these little networks. And finding that investor club that kind of gets the philosophy that kind of aligns with what you're learning how to do is is really what's going to take you to the next level. There's no way I could have just read books and just read bigger pockets and gotten to the level that I've gotten to without these other ancillary courses or sources of information. So it takes a little passion and it takes a little bit of work to get there. This has to be something you're interested in. One of the other things I noticed is the automation. So every once in a while I get emails from you that is just you know, selling deals. Here's what I got. Here's what it's worth. Here's how much money we need. When did you start automating like this? And are you finding that you have enough connections through your email list that you're constantly now doing business and getting friends, family, and other investors involved in these deals? Yeah, sure. So in case you guys aren't familiar with what he's talking about, I have a, an investors list. And so what I do is I, I, I collect freely. I'm not like selling anything. I collect people's contact information, email address, typically sometimes a cell phone number. And when I get access to deals, I can't take all these deals down myself. I don't want to build the empire, but I don't want to stop, stop my marketing. Building up the marketing uh, pipeline is the hard part of this business. Then you get access to all these deals. Some I take down myself, some I don't. And when I can't take them down myself, I share them with my list of investors. And these are people who said, I want to do rentals. I want to do flips. I want to do burrs. And they're typically in central Arkansas. So if you're not interested in, in investing there, no hard feelings, but that's where my deals are. And so they reach out to me after receiving that email saying, you know, I saw that property on 123 Main Street. That looks interesting. Tell me more about it. How can I get into it? What's the situation? Do you have more pictures? Yada, yada. And that is how I fund and feed pretty much everything I do because I'm basically connecting people to deals. I'm connecting uh, sources of deals to money, to partners. And sometimes I partner with deals together and sometimes we uh, wholesale the property and just assign the interest over. There's a lot of different permutations that I take and I don't really go into any one deal with one exit strategy in mind. I try and play the field to figure out what what's out there and what I need on this deal. So sometimes I need to raise $80,000. So I go and raise $80,000. We take this deal down and six months from now, I'll refi you back out and you get 10% on your money during that time. And then you may come back later and say, okay, I like that. But now can you just keep giving me 10% money? <laughs> now the transaction changes because what people find is once they actually get the money deployed and they get their 10% of their money, they kind of like it because it's easy because all they're doing is cash and checks and which is really just an ACH transaction in the first place. Then I send the money back and they have $80,000 in their IRA again. And uh, okay, well I want, I want to get that again. Like, well, why don't you just let me 
keep doing that. <laughs> and that's typically what happens is they test you by putting your money out for six to 12 months. Then the money comes back and then they say, okay, I get it. I trust you. You know what you're doing. This, I see how it works. Now let's see if we can do a deal. It's like three or five years so I can get a consistent return without having to move the money back and forth. So you have a pool of money people who know you, know the deals you're involved with, say, hey, I've got this amount of money sitting around, get mm-hmm. me X return, and then you can pull from them depending on what the deal is? Oh, yeah. And there's way more money out there than there are deals. There's a lot of people that are sitting on lazy money inside their IRA that they don't want to have deployed in the market for whatever reason. Some people just are, are opposed to it, especially real estate investor type people. But then others, like they, they just don't like the, the, the volatility of the market. Um, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. They don't know. They would rather just get a, a kager of 10%, right? Like Because if you look at your average return, that's not really what you're actually getting. It's your aggregated uh, return over time. So it's just interesting how people think about money differently and I don't try and impose what their goals are. If they are happy with what I'm doing, then fine. And if they want to invest in the stock market, which is, I still do plenty of more power to them. I'll talk about that all day. I just can't help them. And how often do you have to go looking for deals nowadays or do they just come to you? Oh, I, I, I haven't looked at a house personally in quite a while. That's, 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 that I, I think of that as a um, low value activity at this point. I've, I've seen enough houses. I don't need to go see more houses. I have a team of people that are out there actively looking at, looking at deals, making offers. And we, we, I meet with my team daily at nine o'clock every day. And we talk about what's happening and we call the daily huddle. And we, we meet six days a week. Let's review all of our daily activities or, or all of our active deals. And what do we need to do to make this one happen? Or, or is this one under contract right now? Or, or what do we need to get this one, the pictures on this one? Does it have a lockbox? And we have this kind of like this, I have this business that runs like that. And so, yeah, I, I do a lot of marketing, but I spend very little time talking to sellers or sitting or going to visit properties anymore. Once a week or so, I'll, it's funny you say that. Um, I actually came out with a, a episode of what it's like to be uh, a full-time real estate investor on my Ready Investor One podcast. Um, and of all the episodes that I've done, it's the one that I've gotten the most feedback on because people love to hear what it's like to be a full-time real estate investor. And it was a bad day for me. It was not the ideal day, so which, which is why people liked it because I, I talk about what it's like to go into a property and have roaches rain down on, on top of your head, which is what <laughs> happened that day. So I broke my own rule. I went, I went and looked at a property and I went, and I, sure enough, I opened the door. And you paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I had so much hassle that day. It was a really funny episode. Well, Paul Thompson, thank you for coming back on the show. I just think it's so interesting to hear how real estate investors are doing in this pandemic and also to learn a little bit about your own evolution from straightforward landlord to dealmaker. I think it's a great story, one that we need to hear and what many of us aspire to. So thanks for coming back on the show. And as always, a pleasure to chat with you. Likewise, I appreciate it so much. Perfect. Awesome, man. That was a lot of fun. And I think it was a nice mix of um, 
Like it wasn't too heavy, but you guys brought out some really kind of good statistics and ideas about millionaires. And yeah, it was kind of a nice mix. I did of, not make it too heavy. Yeah. No, it was perfect. You guys did awesome. And I think like sometimes we get a little too deep financially. We Some people that, you know, are just dabbing and dabbling into it. Yeah, you mentioned HSA, and then are you guys interviewing Jackie Cummings Koski, or did you interview her? Yeah, that's we right. did. That's, that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm hearing yeah, that story. I'm a- like, I know her. I'm actually going to be. Oh no, no, I'm not going to be on a call with her later today. But but I know her. Yeah, good. she was great. She was great. Yeah, yeah she's she was phenomenal. She's also. I'll tell you, if you're doing your own editing, she's really easy to edit. She- yeah. <laughs> She yeah. doesn't like make you are. Mistakes. You are too. I texted Jace during years. I'm like, oh, this is oh, great. It's gonna be you know? great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, I actually, I'm become very thoughtful about the way I talk, um, because Same here. I, you just listen I know. to it. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm not gonna make it painful for someone else. Totally. Yep. You care about your money, of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.